Our reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at, at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be together this morning to worship, to sing your praise. We thank you for the gifts you've given us, how you've provided for our needs. And so we return to you what, you have, what has come to us through your hands. We return these tithes, these gifts, and these offerings. And we do ask that you would use these gifts in order that your kingdom would be revealed here and throughout the world, in order that the wonderful good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Father, as we ourselves prepare to sit beneath your word and to hear the good news again, we, we ask that you would allow us to sit beneath your word in both humility and great confidence. Allow us to sit beneath your word humbly to hear you, our Creator, speak to us, um, to acknowledge our brokenness before you, our need for justifying and sanctifying grace. We 
But we also pray that you would allow us to sit beneath your word with confidence, that you would remind us that when you open your mouth to speak, you call things into existence which were not. And the very first page of your word tells us this, the creation of all things. But when your son walked the face of this earth, it was by the power of his voice that he called out to the blind and they received their sight, to the deaf and they were made to hear, to the lame and they were made to walk. It was by the power of his voice that he spoke into the tombs themselves and raised the dead. Father, we pray that you would raise the dead this morning by the power of your voice, that you would heal us with the power of your voice, that you would give our eyes sight this morning in order that we, with the eyes of faith, might see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Children uh, are dismissed at this time to Children's Church. You can make your way, children ages three to six, to the back of the sanctuary at this time. We are uh, we're in the series that we've been doing on relationships for the past several weeks, for a few weeks now. And we started in the Tower of Babel uh, in Genesis, and we saw there both the glory of our relationships, but also the reality of their fracture and their brokenness. And we heard Jesus' prayer in John 17, uh, praying that we, his followers, would be one, that we would be united in our relationships. We heard James diagnose our conflict and Paul tell us to forgive because we've been forgiven, right? And we've, we talked about talking in our relationships, speaking the truth in love to one another. Last week we saw that we can, there's hope for us to be able to drop our guard with one another um, and be vulnerable with one another and authentic in our relationships because Jesus himself dropped his guard, right? When he took on flesh and he became vulnerable and he became killable for us. And this morning, I want us to see in this parable from Luke's gospel that the gospel transforms us and engages us in outward-facing hospitality. And listen, this is very much at the heart of what we are about at Grace Community Church. Um, And and so one thing I want to say to you um, at the beginning is that if you're not a Christian or if you've walked away from the church for a period of time and are only now just getting uh, testing the waters again, we really want and we strive for this to be a safe place for you, to be a safe place for you and a welcome and hospitable place for you to examine and wrestle with the claims of Jesus. Um, But I also want to say this, we also want to be a church that is proactively moving out and towards others with welcome, hospitality, and grace. So not just reactive, but proactive um, in our hospitality. Now, why is that? it's just because we need something to be our vision? Um, well, no, not really. It's because this is, this I think is at the heart of the transformation that the gospel brings us 
when we experience the grace of Jesus. See, this is everywhere in the Bible and throughout the Gospels, right? You think about what happened as you read the Bible when people experienced Jesus's grace. What did they normally do? They ran to tell other people about Jesus, right? Their lives were shockingly, uh, deeply and profoundly changed and transformed. They became incredibly free and self-forgetful and radically generous. I mean, tax collectors, right? And, And fishermen, they abruptly left their careers to follow Jesus, right? Thieves and prostitutes and drunkards, they forgot themselves, All the shame that could be heaped upon them in that society, they forgot about it all. And nothing could stop them from getting to Jesus and his grace. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is about um, a man named Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector. So he was a Jewish man, but he was working for the occupying government of the time, right? He was working for the Romans. So he's a traitor to his own people. But even beyond that, he was... Um, he was stealing from his own people. And he had become a wealthy man by stealing from his people. Um, uh, see, he, had, he would come to them and tax them, but he would always charge them a little bit more, and he would line his pockets with a little bit more of the difference. Um, and you know what happened when Zacchaeus encountered Jesus, when Zacchaeus experienced the grace of Jesus? His life exploded outward in generosity to others and grace to others. He didn't just pay back what he took. He paid back four times the amount he had taken from others. 400% increase, right? Transformed from, from really turned inward on himself, right? And and self-absorption to becoming free and radically generous. What should it look like if we have experienced Jesus's grace in our lives? How will can and should our lives be transformed? And what would it look like to be a part of a community transformed like this? Not turned inward and self-protective and and cowering in insecurity, but set free and faced outward in confident, open, generous hospitality. Here's what I want to do. I want us to take our time and work our way through this parable um, that Jesus tells. Uh, Really, the the parable beginning in verse 12 uh, of our passage that we read this morning. And there are three things that I want us to see this morning. I want us to see the ultimate feast that Jesus is talking about. I want us to see astonishing grace. And then finally, I want us to talk about outward-facing hospitality. So first, the, the ultimate feast. Not just a feast. But the ultimate feast, and here's what I mean. At the end of verse 14 in our passage, Jesus mentioned being repaid at the resurrection of the just. And see, that little statement prompted a a guest in verse 15 to say, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. That's unfamiliar. It's strange language to us. We don't speak like this, right? But these people knew exactly what was being discussed, right? See, that imagery, the resurrection of the dead, eating bread in God's kingdom, they were talking about the ultimate feast. They were talking about the final day when God's glorious kingdom would come in all of its perfect fulfillment and fullness. 
They saw the kingdom with this kind of imagery, right? The ultimate feast in the master's house, at the master's table, right? Feasting in total joy and delight and security and fulfillment and celebration. Let me try um, maybe a more familiar image for us for just a second. do Do you know what it feels like to be homesick, right? Maybe some of you have seen your kids go through this recently, or maybe you can think back to a time when you went to summer camp or something like that. I mean, camp, at camp, this happens a lot, right? There are tons of activities to be enjoyed. You're surrounded by your friends, your buddies at camp, and adults are actually getting paid to make sure you have the best time of your life during this week or two, right? But listen to me, if you're homesick, you cannot enjoy any of it, right? Your heart, your mind, your affections are obsessed with home and not bricks and mortar and shelter and closet space, right? Obsessed with an idea of home, home as an ideal, maybe. I mean, the home that people sing songs about and write poetry about, that home. A place of comfort and security, right? A place of love, a place of rest and joy and refreshment. Now, honestly, there is some homesickness in all of us, right? There is a longing in all of us for a place of warmth and true beauty. To find a place of rest and satisfaction for us. A place that never drains us. A place where our life, our, our life will flourish, right? Where, where life is as it is meant to be for us. And, and, you know, many of us, we spend our lives trying to build that, trying to get there, trying to create that. And some of us, we feel like we got a taste of it at some point. And so that, that ta- just that taste was so powerful and so wonderful that we are constantly trying to recreate it and trying to get back there. But what's obvious is that nothing else could possibly satisfy us. And we know this deep in us. One of my favorite places in C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia uh, stories comes right at the end of the last book. And he do, Lewis does his best to whet our appetites for what is really indescribable. He's really talking about this ultimate feast that one day, someday, when God will come again and we will feast with him in perfect joy and delight. And at one point, Lewis wrote, the difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. And every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. In the very end of the book, Lewis, he wrote that the things that began, began to happen to these creatures and these people were so great and so beautiful that he couldn't write them. And he said that this was just the beginning of chapter one, right, of the great story. And he says this, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one that came before. And that's beautiful right there, right? Every chapter better 
than the one that came before. But in the midst of all this new Narnia stuff, one of Lewis's creatures says this. He burst out and cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. And I think we get what he's talking about. See, we are hungry for ultimate beauty, love, peace, wholeness, joy, completion, and satisfaction. There's this home, this ultimate feast, this place we belong. It's why not just the Chronicles of Narnia, but all the best stories you have ever read, they, you, you know they need to end with a happily ever after. Right? They need to. It's incomplete. It's unfulfilling. It's unsatisfying and unfinished without it. Like Lewis, we don't have enough imagery. We don't have enough information to describe that day and that feast in, in perfect detail. But we do know this. This ultimate feast is the only one that can satisfy you so deeply that you will never be hungry again. It'll be like coming home to joy that is so deep that it turns all your deepest pains and your sorrows in life into delight. Rest and life flourishing and love so complete that not one tear will ever be shed at this table. Right? And death and mourning, they will be vanquished forever and ever. That's what's being discussed here. The ultimate feast, home at last. Now, be honest with yourself. Ask yourself, could this maybe be the desire underneath all your other desires? Is this the land you've been looking for all your life, though you never knew it till now, as Lewis puts it? Maybe it really is. And if it is, there's some very good news in point two. So second, let's look at what I'm calling astonishing grace here. As astonishing as this future banquet, this ultimate feast is, it's more astonishing in this parable that Jesus tells uh, uh, who, who will be invited to this feast. Look, the parable that Jesus told in verses 16 through 24, it isn't really that complicated. In this culture, when someone, uh, wanted, someone gave a, a great feast, they would send out two different invitations. It was kind of like their RSVP system, right? So one invitation for the guests to accept the invitation to attend the feast, um, you know, save the date on your evite, that kind of thing. And then on the day of the feast, the master would send his servant out with the second invitation. And that invitation was more like this. The food is ready. Come and enjoy the master's feast. Right, So you see the offense in this story that Jesus tells, the offense that's created by the rejection of the second invitation. Suddenly, there were more things, more important things for these people to be doing than attend this master's feast. Land and oxen needed to be inspected. A man wanted to stay home with his new wife. I mean, just think of it. No one inspects land and oxen after you purchase land and oxen, right? 
This is an excuse, right? The, they were, and these excuses were major slights and snubs to the master. And obviously, this man with a new wife, he had planned his marriage before he had accepted this invitation. You see, wealthy financially and materially, to, to buy land and oxen, to buy 10 oxen, you, needed to be, you had to be really wealthy in this culture, rich in relationships. The point is, they had become too busy right? Their affections were consumed with too many other things. Other things were more important to them than this feast. And we could talk for a while about the things that vie for our deepest affections, right? For our worship, for our delight. And we could talk a lot about our idolatry. But what I really want the, where I want the accent to fall is on this. Spurned and rejected, the master in his anger, verse 21, turned to invite a very unlikely group to this feast, right? He sent his servant out into the streets and lanes of the city to verse 21. Bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And when there were still empty seats, right, the master sent his servant out again in verse 23 to the highways and hedges to compel these outsiders to come in. See, what Jesus is talking about is that this invitation goes out to the very fringes of society, to the outsiders, right, to the dirty and to the unclean, right? The blind and the crippled and the lame, if you didn't know, in the Old Testament, because of their infirmities, they were forbidden from worshiping in the temple. They were unclean. This group of homeless outsiders, right, were people who had blown it in life and didn't amount to anything, had ruined their lives, and were now homeless and had nothing. They would never, ever be able to repay this king for his kindness, financially or by reputation or by social connection. Here's why I'm calling this point astonishing grace. The master says, bring them in, compel them to come in. Do you know why he has to say that? Because these people, when they got the invitation, they would have thought this has to be a joke. Right? They're the one they would say, I don't believe it. It is it's too good to be true. There must be a mistake. The master can't want me. And this master is saying, you are exactly who I want at my feast. I don't care who you are or where you've been or what you have done. This full, satisfying, joyous feast, the home you were made for, right? The place you belong this master is saying, is at my table and it's completely free. He is saying, come broken as you are and enjoy your master's feast. Favorite story of mine is of a pastor who was in Hawaii at a conference and late one evening, well, three o'clock in the morning, he found himself in this lonely diner and he had gone in to get a cup of coffee and a, and a donut as he describes it. And while he was sitting there, Three prostitutes walked in. So it was three prostitutes, 
this pastor and the cook behind the counter. And, um, and as he was sitting there, he overheard uh, part of the conversation that these prostitutes were having. And one of these prostitutes had said, by the way, tomorrow is my birthday. And as soon as she said that, the others heaped ridicule upon her. You know, so what? What do we care if it's your birthday? Right? Who do you think you are? You're just a prostitute. You expect a birthday party? On and on it went. And she obviously felt rejected. So when they had left, this pastor pulled the cook over and he said, how often do these prostitutes come in here? And he said, well, they come in on the dot, three o'clock every morning. It's part of their routine. And so this pastor said, well, tomorrow, if I come back, can we throw a birthday party for her? Can you help me spread the word and make a cake, and I'll bring decorations. So he came back the next evening, early in the morning hours, and they got it all set up, and people just started coming. <laughs> and, and he said this place, it was just wall-to-wall prostitutes, 3 o'clock in the morning, and a pastor, and this cook, right? And so when they came in at 3 o'clock in the morning, they all sang happy birthday. They sang happy birthday to this girl, and she burst out in tears, and it got real quiet. And no one knew what to say. And I, I can attest to this being a pastor. And so pastor, not knowing what else to do, said, let's pray. It's a really good, like, a move uh, for a preacher. Um, so you can always pull that one. Um, but, you know, after this, after this, <laughs> this prayer meeting um, with the cook and the, and the prostitutes and the pastor... This cook pulled the guy aside and he said, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. <laughs> what kind of church do you belong to? And he said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at three o'clock in the morning. Astonishing grace, right? To belong to Jesus, to belong to him is to belong to a savior who throws parties for prostitutes. Right, And he's the one who throws feasts for the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. You know, Someone once said that there are only two organizations that you have to be bad in order to get in. The mafia, of course, and the church. Right, You have to be bad in order to get in. I mean, grace is for the outsider. It is for the broken, for the bruised and the fallen. Right, This parable that Jesus is telling, he's saying this. I want you to understand... That the insiders are out and the outsiders are in. And you may not be literally poor or blind or cripple or lame, right? And you may not be a literal outsider this morning. But to come to this table and feast, you have to see that your sin has blinded you, it has crippled you, and it has left you bankrupt and outside. Jesus, verse 24, by the way, tells us plainly that he is the master of the feast, the master of this banquet, but he's also the one who pays the price to bring you in, right? Grace, this astonishingly free is also astonishingly costly, right? Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's the assurance of pardon that you heard this morning in our worship service. He became sin for us. He became an outsider to make you an insider, 
Right? He gave to give you a life where every chapter will be better than the one that came before. He lost his life to give you a seat at his father's table. He was cast outside and crucified. Let me say this before we move on. For the person who understands grace and who really believes the gospel, right? There is a consistent wonder and amazement and even surprise at salvation. Here's what I mean. We, we are at least living here in Memphis. We are at least living in the remnants of the Bible Belt, right? It's disappearing underneath our very eyes. But we're still in the remnants of it, right? And if you ask a traditional moralist in the South if he or she is a Christian, you will most likely hear something like this. Of course I am. Aren't you? Right? But if you ask someone who understands that Jesus became sin for us, in order to bring us in, in order for us to become the righteousness of God. Ask someone who understands salvation that is by grace and grace alone, and that person will say, I know, it's amazing, isn't it? It's unbelievable that I would be in. See, if the gospel is not creating that kind of amazement for you, that kind of wonder, that surprise that Jesus would invite you and welcome you into his feast, then you have to begin to ask yourself, what's wrong, what's missing, what's broken in my understanding of the gospel? Because you don't get it. These people in this parable, they were amazed and shocked. And you and I, if we understand salvation by grace, we would be shocked too. All right, this all brings us to our final point, which was really where we began, outward-facing hospitality. Centrifugal force, right? Centrifugal force is that force that your kids feel when they're on the playground playing on the merry-go-round. The faster it begins to spin, right, the more they feel like they're about to fly off of the thing. Um, and here's all that I'm saying here in this point. When you experience the grace of Jesus, it naturally creates a, a centrifugal force in the middle of your life. It's actively at work setting you so free that it's spinning out to others, right? And towards the fringes, towards the outsiders, towards the needy who could never possibly repay you. See, when the gospel gets into your heart and it really works on you, it tells you that you are loved by the king of kings, by the creator of the universe. He was cast out and crucified to bring you all the way into his house and to his table. And when you experience his outward facing hospitality to you, it creates this centrifugal force in our lives where we are moved out towards others with hospitality. Here, culturally, the society that Jesus was speaking to was built on the patronage system, okay? And that system was formed and forged through the practice of hospitality. And here's how it worked. You showed hospitality to those people who could be of value to you, right? And you only accepted invitations to eat with people who could be of value to you, who could meet your needs emotionally or improve your reputation or advance your standing or connect you socially and relationally in this culture. So you see what Jesus is doing. He is turning this system on its head in verses 12 through 14. 
He's saying, don't invite your brothers and your friends and your relatives and your rich neighbors, those people who could add value to your life. He is saying, instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame in verse 14. And it's no accident that those are the same categories that show up in the story that he tells in verse 21. See, Jesus wasn't just turning this culture upside down. He was saying that his astonishing grace, it always turns worlds upside down. He he is saying it will turn your world upside down and my world upside down. Because listen, we know how it works. We naturally enter into and form relationships of reciprocity. Okay, The people we would naturally be friends with. Right. There's this unspoken currency involved, this unspoken contract, and it's reciprocal in our relationships where we contribute something, but we're always expecting that person to contribute something to us as well. Right. Emotionally satisfying, fulfilling, safe, comfortable, socially uplifting. Right. Improving our reputation, politically connecting us to the right groups of people, those kind of things. And a lot of the time in your life and mine, that does not feel like a convenience to us. It feels like a necessity that this is how you survive in a broken world. You connect to people who can be of value to you in your life, right? So how do, how do prostitutes who scandalously approach Jesus amidst the scorning, shameful looks of others, how do they forget about all that? And wipe his feet with their tears. Right? How do people like Zacchaeus become so free from self-absorption and self-protection that they become radically generous? Here's what happened. All of a sudden, they didn't need the approval of others anymore. They don't need the security that money can give anymore. They don't need the status. Right? They don't need that status to know that they are valued and worthy. They don't need those connections in order to have an identity and know who they are anymore. They found all of that when they met Jesus in his grace. So great was his love. So much did he value them. Right. That he moved towards them in hospitality and brought them all the way in. And now they are free to face outward. Right. To spin out in relationships freely and generously, never needing repayment. And the gospel is saying to you this morning that you can have that too, right? You simply need to know that you are broken, that you are sinful, that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you are an outsider, but he loved you and he valued you so much that he left his father's side and he became vulnerable and killable for you. And he died for you. He became an outsider. He was crucified outside the city in order to bring you in. See, good news like that will begin to change you. It will transform you. It will set you free to face outward. It will spin you out without needing any repayment. Let me real quickly end this with three little bits of application. Make this concrete. First thing, I'm willing to bet that more than just a handful of you... um, the majority of you, probably all of you, um, felt it this past week uh, in that you turned in on yourself at some point. You kind of got a glimpse of who you were this week at some point. And when you saw yourself, you turned in 
in shame and in fear that you would be found out. And you turned in on yourself in disgust and frustration and in anger. And at some point you thought, how could anyone ever love me? Right? If anyone knew how messed up I really was, they would know that I'm unlovable. That's extreme, but you felt some degree of that this past week, right? And when you did, and when I did, we started needing some things, needing validation from our careers, right? Or from our parenting or from our spouse or needing to turn inward and protect ourselves, needing approval and needing to know we matter and and looking for how we might find that, that value. So here's the first application. Robert Murray McShane famously gave this sound piece of advice. He said, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Jesus. Right? What needs to be front and center right before our eyes is Jesus. Find everything you need in him. See him suffering and dying in your place. Not one debt, not one sin left unpaid. See him becoming an outsider in order to bring you in. Right? See him valuing, loving, saving you, bringing you all the way in. And that will begin to work on your heart and change you. Second thing, second practical piece of application, practice loving and moving towards people who cannot pay you back. We all have people in our lives that we know will never give us a relationship of reciprocity. And you can probably list their names right now. You know, these people you say, I can't ever imagine myself becoming friends with those people. These are the people that when you pass them in the hallway at work, you try to avoid eye contact with them. Because even just the eye contact, you feel it is going to cost you something. Right? That's the person, the coworker, the neighbor that you need to move towards. Get involved in people's lives who are really broken who really messed up and messy with financial burdens and chemical dependency and emotional baggage, people very different from you in likes and dislikes and matters of race and socioeconomic status. Do this and it will do you more good than you will ever do them. Because it will begin to give you a taste. It will begin to scratch the surface for you of understanding how much you are loved in Jesus. See, the application to... to this is to sit around the lunch table and say, who can we invite over to our house this week? Who fits into those categories? Who can we bring in? Who can we have over for dinner? Who can we start intentionally getting to know like this? Who can we be generous to? Okay, third, last thing. You need to realize that most people don't get argued into the kingdom of God. They get loved into the kingdom of God. The blind, the poor, the crippled, and the lame, those living in the highways and hedges, I mean, they had to be brought in. They had to be compelled to come in. You know, I was thinking about it this morning. These people were, they were suspicious of that invitation, certainly. But I can imagine them being suspicious all the way to the master's house as the servant was bringing them in. You know, what's the catch? Where's the fine print? What are the strings attached to this? Right? It can't simply be that the master loves us. But it is, right? See, not many people become Christians by getting argued into the kingdom. They become Christians because people like you and people like me love them into the kingdom. Why not just start by saying our family 
is going to move towards people not like us, and we're going to love them. We're going to get to know them. We're going to have them in our home. Maybe down the road you can invite them to the church, (laughs) but not until you have shown them real love and inclusion in your family. What would this church look like if we did that, if we created space consistently for others, right, where there was warmth and rest for the weary and for the broken? This place might begin to start looking like a home. Right? The place we belong. A taste of the ultimate feast. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you have met with us this morning. You continue to be with us. We thank you for the good news. We thank you for Jesus who told these stories. Who reminded us of what a big deal it was that he was outward facing in his hospitality, that he came towards us, that he moved out from your right hand in order that he would come and he would live and he would die in our places. And we pray, Father, that the good news would work on our hearts, that it would begin to change us and transform us from the inside out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.